Our text this morning is found in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It could be found on page 775 in the Bibles in the pews. I'm going to start reading in verse 10 of chapter 3 and then all the way through Jonah chapter 4. When God saw what they did, the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do, well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let us together pray and ask the Lord's uh, help as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the privilege we've had to study it over the course of these few weeks. And God, now that it comes to a close, we, we see that your grace, as amazing as it is, also reveals to us our own hearts. And God, as we open this particular passage, we pray that you would help us to understand not only your grace, but even the sinfulness of our own hearts and our need to come to you and receive your grace and compassion. Would my words be true? May you be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Human beings do not like being exposed. It is an experience we typically do all that we can to avoid. We set up all kinds of security on our accounts to avoid financial exposure. We password protect, fingerprint protect our phones, our tablets, and other devices to keep our personal information from getting out there, wherever out there is. And not to be crass, but we wear clothes to keep our bodies concealed, despite our culture's loud encouragement to the contrary. But possibly greater than these, we fear exposure of those things that are internal. Weaknesses, secrets, controversial opinions, insecurities we would rather keep tightly wrapped than having them get out. It is why many of us fear certain relationships or certain social settings. The risk of being exposed is too high. It simply isn't worth it. 
but probably our greatest fear when it comes to exposure is our sin. We do not want our sin exposed, and our sin does not want to be exposed. Each party wants to, seeks to keep things in the dark. Jesus declared this reality to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Exposure shows others and ourselves that we, what we are really like. Far scarier than leaked personal information, far more embarrassing than physical exposure, is the uncomfortable feeling of staring at our own sin. It is often an ugly picture. We would rather look away from it, hide from it, and so we do everything we can to keep it in the dark, away from God, even away from ourselves, and away from others. Unfortunately, or fortunately for us, we cannot succeed. All of our efforts to avoid exposure will fail because our God is one who sees and exposes everything. Hebrews 4.13, after it declares the power of God's word, also declares, And no creature is hidden from his, God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we all must give an account. After taking a back seat in chapter 3, Jonah returns in chapter 4 front and center at the close of his book. We find that God is not quite finished with his prophet just yet. The people of Nineveh have repented. They have turned from their wickedness and their evil. God has shown them his grace. He has shown them his mercy. And Jonah has had a front row seat to it all. One would expect Jonah to respond in praise and worship. As we come upon chapter 4, we would almost expect another psalm of thanksgiving that we read in chapter 2 after Jonah was delivered from the depths of the sea by the fish. The grace of God should amaze Jonah. It should amaze us. But instead, we find that it exposes Jonah. It reveals the true condition of this prophet's heart. He remains unchanged. His rebellion is not over. And this is the truth for us this morning. Yes, the grace of God is certainly warranting of our praise and our worship. That is one reason why we gather, to praise God for his grace. But the grace of God also reveals our hearts. It exposes our sin even as we witness more and more of who God is and what he has done. The grace of God shown to sinners exposes our sinful hearts and his great compassion. The grace of God shown to sinners exposes our sinful hearts and his great compassion. And this grace of God that exposes our sin and this compassion will be seen in, in these three points. First, we'll see that Jonah is outraged by God's character. That's in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll see that Jonah is offended by God's control. We see that in verses 5 through 9. And then finally, we will see that the Lord offers compassion. Jonah is outraged by God's character. He is offended by God's control. And the Lord offers compassion. We begin first with Jonah is outraged by God's character. Jonah is furious that God is a God of grace and mercy. Now, to be perfectly honest, I do not understand Jonah one bit. If I walked into some city 
preached a sermon, witnessed mass revival, I am confident that anger would not be my issue. It would be pride. I would be tempted to boast in myself how great I am to see this mass revival happen under my preaching. It would be no less sinful than Jonah, let me be clear about that, but it would be wildly different. But Jonah, we see, is not struggling with gloating. He's not struggling with boastful pride. He is too busy seething with anger. Our English translations tone down Jonah's words in 4.1 when it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. But we see that what the Lord did in verse 10 in sparing Nineveh, Jonah viewed as a great evil. The same term evil that has been used over and over again throughout this book. And in three cases, that word has been used to talk about the people of Nineveh. Evil and wicked. It's what they were known for. Jonah sees what the Lord has done in turning from judgment with mercy and with grace as the same vein that the Lord views the very sin of the people of Nineveh. And as a boiling teapot eventually shouts, Jonah has reached his tipping point, and he screams out in his anger. Now on the positive note, Jonah's anger leads him to prayer. It says very clearly he prayed to the Lord, and I will confess that Jonah has me beat here. When I am angry, I would much rather vent my frustrations and my anger elsewhere in far less healthy ways. To his credit, the Lord, Jonah takes his anger to the Lord. But unlike his prayer from chapter 2, Jonah is not thankful. He is not asking for, refuge, uh, for rescue. He is seeking to justify himself. He says, O Lord, is this, the fact that you turned and relented, is not this why what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. We finally get the reason why Jonah ran away. We've been kind of left in the dark for three chapters. And now finally, Jonah confesses why he ran in the first place. He knew that God would be merciful, and that was the very last thing he wanted. Why? There's a whole number of reasons, but I think the main reason is destroying the people of Nineveh would destroy the enemy of God's people. This is part of Jonah's problem. He has zero love for his enemies. They do not deserve to be the beneficiaries of God's gracious character. They deserve his wrath. They deserve his ang anger. They do not deserve his grace and his mercy. If Jonah had his wish, he would either be still on the boat for Tarshish or in Tarshish while Nineveh was burning. And because this didn't happen, Jonah is now ready and pleading for death. He says, therefore now, O Lord... Because you have turned and relented, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. In Jonah's mind, he cannot fathom living in a world where those outside of God's covenant can receive mercy and grace. He would rather die. The life that he pleaded with God to spare, but five days earlier in the belly of the fish, he's now pleading with God to take. That's how angry Jonah is. It's how outraged he is at who the Lord is and what he's done. Grace of God has exposed Jonah's heart. It is a heart too self-focused, too self-obsessed, to gaze into the wonder of God's amazing grace and mercy. His hatred for these people, his enemies, has turned him into a, lame, a raving lunatic 
freely accusing God of evil. And God is not evil to Jonah simply because of his mercy in this one instant. It is because God is consistently merciful. As one scholar says, Jonah sees God, God's action as typical, not some odd exception. This is what he says when he, he, he confesses to the Lord his very name. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is taking issue with who the Lord is and how he has revealed himself, not only to Jonah, but to the entire nation of Israel. Jonah's confession is almost a verbatim repeat of Exodus 34, where the Lord showed Moses his glory and revealed his name. If you remember, the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, passed by, and declared his name, which is tied to his character. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a gracious, merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who the Lord is. This is his name. This is his character. And this is what fills Jonah with anger. He finds it a great evil that God would be like this toward anyone but Israel. The people of Nineveh are wicked. They're immoral. They are the very enemy of God's people. Jonah has no category for why they would receive God's mercy. He knows it's in God's nature and he can't stand it. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest, the grace of God can seem at times like an outrage to our finite senses. It is poured out upon the wicked and the righteous alike. Even those we would call our enemies are the recipients of God's grace and mercy on a daily basis. Despite how we may wish to the contrary, they do not always get what they deserve here and now. Just look at the global church. In places like Central Africa and Asia, the enemies of God's people are committing unspeakable evils, unspeakable things. And if you listen, you will hear the prayers of our brothers and sisters are very different than the prayers of Jonah. They certainly plead for the Lord to deliver. They're asking him to rescue, to make the evil stop. But also you will see them desperately pleading with the Lord to show grace and mercy to their enemies. Do we pray like this for our enemies? Towards those who maybe throw insults or ridicules. Do we hope that God's grace would intervene for those who even celebrate their sin and make fun of us or tell us we are wrong to celebrate it with them? Do we ask that God would be gracious and merciful to them? Or are we like Jonah, angry, complaining, self-obsessed? May our response not be like Jonah, but may we plead with the Lord to be gracious even to those who are against us. May it certainly lead us to sing all the more of God's great compassion and mercy because we are reminded that apart from his mercy and compassion in Christ, we would be in the same boat, deserving his wrath and judgment. So instead of being angry like Jonah, may we heed the words of Christ to show compassion on our enemies. When Christ said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we see that Jonah is outraged by God's character, but we also see that Jonah is offended by God's control. Jonah has a problem with God's sovereign choice. Jonah knows that God is sovereign. 
He's confessed it at the end of his prayer in chapter 2. He has witnessed it over and over again. But in this scene in verses 5 through 9, it shows that just because Jonah knows it's true does not mean that he appreciates the fact that God is sovereign. It is only apparent that he appreciates God's sovereignty when he or Israel are the beneficiaries of it. What takes place between Jonah, God, this plant, this worm, the sun, all form this mini picture of how God operates by his own free choice and his sovereign plan. First, the Lord shows Jonah that he freely delivers as he wills. The list of, the bo- of people in this book alone is long. We have sailors, we have the people of Nineveh, over 120,000 of them. We have the beasts, and all of them have tasted the Lord's deliverance. Each has been delivered by death by nothing other than the grace and the mercy of God. And while not being delivered from death a second time, we see Jonah receives a deliverance from the Lord once again. In anger, Jonah leaves the city, goes up on a mountain, and waits to see if the Lord will change his mind again. He's longing to see if his argument has been convincing enough that the Lord would change his mind and destroy Nineveh. And since he's hot, he builds this makeshift booth to avoid the sun. It helps, but it only can do so much. But the Lord comes to Jonah's aid and delivers him. It says, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. It's on a much smaller scale, but the Lord delivers Jonah according to his sovereign control over all things. He appoints a plant. Just as he appointed a fish, just as he appointed a storm, he's using these things to save Jonah. And the author adds a little bit of a play on words when he says to save Jonah from his discomfort. Literally, to save Jonah from his evil. While Jonah is oblivious, the author knows that Jonah's true problem is not the hot sun. It's the hot anger fuming and raging within him. This is the real source of his discomfort. And how does Jonah respond? It says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He is rejoicing in the Lord's deliverance. He no longer takes issue with God is gracious and merciful. It's now truly a wonderful thing that God would be gracious to Jonah by providing this plant. He is in agreement with God. Way to go. And before we laugh and mock at Jonah, we can often be just as silly. We grumble over how God chooses to deliver. We take issue with how his plan unfolds. Unless, of course, it unfolds to our benefit. Unless it works together for our happiness. Notice I didn't say for our good. Jonah relished in God's sovereign choice when he experienced the benefits of it. But the picture goes on to show that God not only freely delivers, he also freely destroys. It says, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. We have a fish, a plant, and now a worm that God has appointed to orchestrate his sovereign plan. And this plant, Jonah's source of relief, His source of deliverance withers and dies as a result of this worm's feast. And Jonah is back to misery. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The day before it was just the sun, now the Lord appoints the sun and the wind. Everything is attacking Jonah. He's being destroyed, if you will. Physically, Jonah is probably suffering from sunstroke. 
I have not experienced that myself, but I have seen others in a similar condition. It is miserable. It's not pretty. It can be downright scary. And so Jonah is, went from exceeding anger to exceeding happiness back to exceeding anger and discomfort. He again begs for death because it is far better than life. And he even doubles down on it when he answers the Lord's gracious question. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. To Jonah, God's sovereign control makes no sense whatsoever. He's the God who delivers at one moment, and he's the God who destroys the next. Why would he destroy this innocent plant? It didn't do anything, but not the people of Nineveh. They're wicked and sinful. Why would he deliver Jonah over and over again, only to have him be a tool through which God would deliver Nineveh? Jonah has had enough of what he, see, he thinks are God's inconsistencies. They're evil to his finite understanding. He thinks he'd be better off dead than trying to make sense of what's going on. And he has forgotten that the Lord is not like man. He does not operate as we do. Isaiah 55, 8 declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The sovereign control of the Lord is not for us to grumble against, to complain against, and it will not always make sense to us. He does not deliver those we think he should. He does not appear to save those who we may labor in prayer with tears for those to deliver. As the creator of all things, he is free to do as he pleases. As infinitely wise, everything he does is of wisdom. Instead of grumbling and seething with anger like Jonah and outrage, we must trust that as the eternally good and righteous and holy God, that all of his sovereign plans, all of his sovereign choices are equally good and righteous and holy. It does not matter how we perceive them. We are not in control. Quite frankly, we don't want to be in control. If we are like Jonah, the beneficiaries of God's great deliverance, then let it lead us to worship and humility. He is working out his sovereign plan in all things. And in those times of destruction, when sin consistently entangles us and destroys us, maybe even our loved ones, when for whatever reason God appoints things that might lead us to question, May even these things lead us to worship and humility because our God is still in control. May they lead us not to taking offense like Jonah, but to crying out in faith and hope that God truly is working out his sovereign plan in and through us. So we've seen in Jonah that the grace of God has exposed his outrage, his offense, but finally, at the end, in these last two verses, we see that it also exposes the, how the Lord offers his compassion. The Lord declares his compassion for his creatures, both great and small. He has already declared it to Jonah repeatedly by asking him, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's accused God of evil. He has grumbled against him. He has complained against him. He is, again, worthy of judgment. And God's response is a kind question. Is your anger doing you well? Is it helping you? He's drawing Jonah out of his fury. Because the Lord's compassion is that great. 
And this is where Jonah and the Lord could not be any more different. Jonah's compassion is very shallow. It's only for those things pertaining to his world. And that consists as of right now as a plant that appeared, sprouted, and died in one night. Jonah is overwhelmed with compassion for this plant. It is not right that it had to die. Meanwhile, the Lord is compassionate towards his creatures. This is what he says to Jonah. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also much cattle? While Jonah did nothing for the plant, the Lord did everything for the people of Nineveh. He created them in his image, male and female. He gave them rain, sun, and growth for their crops. He opened their wombs year after year. He knew them from the day this people group formed back in Genesis chapter 11. He placed them in their position of prominence and their position of blessing at this moment in time. Even their animals are his creatures worthy of his compassion. What an encouragement for us that no matter how small and insignificant you are or you may feel, the Lord still offers compassion. He is not fickle, only showing compassion like Jonah to those for whom it would be beneficial to him. You are an image bearer for whom he offers his abundant compassion. The common grace of God is alive and at work, and we praise him for it. And while that would be good enough, we also find that the Lord is compassionate towards the spiritually blind. He describes these people of Nineveh as people who don't know their right hand from their left. Not knowing one hand from another is a sign of foolishness. It marks those who are incapable of making sound moral judgments. Some liken it to children, but I think it goes even a step further. Children lack this ability largely because of development issues. They have not reached the given stage where they can begin to make some of these moral decisions. Time, as well as instruction, will generally help to fix this. The people of Nineveh were not lacking development. No amount of time was going to fix their problems. They were foolish. They were in spiritual darkness. They inhabited a city filled with evil. They were the ones responsible for it. They were like Jonah, running away from God. They violated every law and commandment without knowing it. They were guilty and worthy of judgment. And they needed God's divine intervention. They needed his revival, and it is what they received. They received the Lord's compassion. And what a glorious thing it is when God shows spiritually darkened and foolish individuals how amazing his grace truly is. As one theologian states, God's goodness is much more glorious when it is shown to those who only deserve evil. In all of his accusations against God, Jonah has failed to see how wonderful the character of God truly is. It is not tied to one particular person, a people group, as much as Jonah wished. It is not tied to a specific place. It is not only for those, as some would argue, who help themselves. It is not even for those who seemingly deserve it or warrant it. He offers his compassion for all his creatures. It is for you. It is for me. 
It is for our children. It is for our families, our friends, our neighbors, for our city, for everyone and anyone else. And how can we know this for sure? Because of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the incarnation of God's name, confessed by Jonah. He came with grace and mercy. He came abounding in steadfast love. And he came demonstrating these not to God's friends. There weren't any. He came demonstrating it to his enemies. He came to pour out God's grace and mercy upon sinful man in active rebellion against God. Sinful man completely undeserving of anything but God's wrath and judgment. Romans 5 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is our hope. We who were once God's enemies have been made his friends and his children because he's offered us compassion in Jesus Christ. He has and continues to be a gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and a God who relents from disaster. We receive his compassion by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is first, what will you do with this offer of compassion? Will you receive it, or will you continue in darkness? And secondly, for those of us who are resting in Jesus Christ, how will you respond daily to God's abundant compassion? Because even when you sin, which is daily, and I do it too, God meets us with grace. Even when he stumble, he, we stumble, he shows us his mercy. Will we grumble and complain like Jonah? Will we get angry with God when things don't go our way? Or will we worship and submit to him? Will we praise him for his abundant compassion that he has poured out on us in Jesus Christ? And then will we take it one step further and proclaim it and put it on display for all to see? Exposure is rarely fun. It certainly is never desirable. I do not see many intentionally seeking out situations that expose themselves. If anything, we do all we can to keep it from happening. We put up the defenses. And truth be told, we don't know how Jonah ends. We are left with kind of an elephant in the room. What will Jonah do? The story ends very similar to the story of the two brothers in Luke 15, where the father goes to the son and asks him to come to the party, and we don't know what the son's response was. Will Jonah turn from his sin that God's grace is just exposed? Will he worship God for his great compassion on whomever he decides to show it? As we prepare to come to the table, the same question lies before us. How will we respond to the marvelous grace of God? Certainly we will worship him for it, and we should. That is good and right. But we should also see our sin being exposed. Those areas where we may be outraged at God. Those areas where we may be offended by God. And it should show us that we are not like God. We are still in desperate need of his great compassion and mercy. And the table reminds us that it is still there for us. 
And may it also lead us to confession, to repentance. May we allow God's grace to expose us by his spirit and his word that we might be conformed more to the image of his son. The grace of God reveals that we are not like God and he is not like us. It reveals our sin and his great compassion. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your great compassion and your mercy. We acknowledge that we don't deserve it. We are ill-deserving. We have done everything in our power to negate it. And yet, God, you continually show us grace and compassion. Forgive us for where in your sovereign choice of delivering and showing compassion that we have grumbled, that we have been angry. May instead we be moved to humility and to worship and to submission and to trust in you. We thank you for Christ, who in his death has made us who are your enemies, now your friends and your children. May you continually conform us into his likeness. May we be holy as he is holy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.